So today we're starting a new series, kicking off a new year, new series. We're going to revisit some ideas that I've talked about before at different times within the history or the cycle of the church. Something I think we don't talk about enough. It's a concept of being made for more. That we are made for more than what we're experiencing. We're made for more than, than what we see in front of us. We're made for more than just paying bills and living life and getting through that next vacation and buying another car and sending kids to college. We're made for so much more than that, yet I believe not enough of us experience the totality of what we're made for. So we want to go back to the drawing board and understand what value is what it is to be valued of God, what it is to have a sense of value as a human person here on planet Earth. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and the first verse we'll jump to uh, will be James chapter 1 and verse 5. We'll get there in just a second, but before I do that, I'd like you to meet someone uh, by the name of Ian Usher. Ian's face is going to come up on the screen here. Ian had an absolutely beautiful life. He had a beautiful home. He had a beautiful wife, a nice car, great friends. He had a great job. And one day he decided to sell the whole thing on eBay. That he would list his life, the jet skis that he owned, the house that he owned, a two-week trial at his job, his friends, an entire list of all of his friends. He would list it on eBay and see how much money his life would go for. He was hoping for just over $500,000. He went a little short. It was about four hundred grand that his life sold for. Have you ever thought about what the total of your life would sell for? If you had to put yourself up on, the, up on the auction block, the job that you have, maybe not sell your spouse, that's kind of a bad thing to think about doing, but sell your house, your cars, maybe your kids, that might be a good incentive for someone, depending on your children. But to sell the contents of your house, your job, your friends, to sell all of your relationship, to cut all ties, and to see how much it would go for. Well, if you've ever wondered what your life is valued at, there's a website to help you. Humanforsale.com actually allows you to take an assessment of your life. You can take an assessment of your physical attributes, your education, your income level, your athleticism, and it combines this little formula to spit out a dollar amount. And I did mine and it spit out a dollar amount of $3.06 million. And Lori hit the sell button. She was like, now Jesus, sell him. I'm joking, she didn't do that. She thought it, I could see it in her brain when I told her how much. I could see the wheels turning. Can I really get that much out of him? I'm joking. She loves me. Not after this. She might actually sell me. <laughs> but we wonder sometimes what is the life that we have? What is it really valued at? In fact, there are many institutions that tell us what life is valued at. In fact, the EPA says we're worth about one or $9.1 million dollars. The FDA says that our lives in total are worth about $7.9 million. The Department of Transportation, about $6 million. Wired Magazine said if we parted out the body and components, we took your heart, your liver, your kidneys, and sold them to the highest bidder, you would be worth about $45 million. If we windled your life down to just the basic body chemicals, you'd be worth about $3.60. So you could go for as much as a McDonald's Happy Meal or $45 million, depending on how we part you out. Is anyone ready to take on that challenge? So the problem is, until you determine the value of a given thing, you don't know how to treat it. Most of us don't know how to treat ourselves. We don't know how to, treat, how to expect the world around us to treat us because we don't have a sense of value. Most of us are good at understanding that number, that, that $3.60 number, 
We're good at that. We're okay. I, I agree. I'm worth more than a McDonald's Happy Meal. But how many of you understand and believe that you're worth more than that $45 million? You're worth more than the body components that you have inside of you parted out like a spare car, like a truck throwing used, used tires on the side of the road. You're worth more than that. Yet parting out your body in just that same fashion, just parting it out for excess use for whoever needs what, you'd be worth $45 million. Again, if you, don't, if you haven't determined the value of a given thing, you don't know how to treat it. You don't know what to treat it with. My wife and I have had the opportunity to visit some beautiful locations around the world. One of our, well, one of the places we lived and that is one of our favorite locations because of the culture and the people is New Orleans. There's, a, there's an antique shop in New Orleans. It's very unassuming. And when you walk through the front door, it looks like it has some nice furniture in it. You walk through the front door, you walk in the lobby, and there's some beautiful furniture and items and little baubles that you can, you can buy. And, and there's just stuff, you know, it's just kind of crammed with stuff. And you walk in the back, and there's some more stuff in this open courtyard. We were walking through and flipping over tags one day, and there's this armoire, and I thought it was pretty. I thought, man, that might be nice to have in the house. I went over and grabbed the tag, and I flipped it over, and I thought I was going to have a heart attack. $170,000. So how, how is it worth that much? It's just wood. It's painted wood, but it had been through many different lives. It had seen many different owners. It was made of the finest acacia wood. It was beautiful in the grain and how the grain laid out on every detail of that armoire. The, the hand-drawn painting that outlined the, the armoire was absolutely beautiful. $175,000 was the cheapest item of furniture that we found in the store. It's a very expensive place to be. And I'll tell you what, when you walk in the store and you start tipping over tags and you realize they just get more and more expensive from $100 to $200 to $300 to half a million dollars, you start treating everything a little differently. You don't let your kids run around in a store like that and start knocking over items because you've determined the value. And you understand how to treat a given thing because you understand its value. Because someone put a dollar amount on a price tag, you now know how to treat it. You know what it would cost to buy that item. For some of us, it's more than our house. For one item. One item you stick in a corner and you put some knickknacks on. And one item that you might put in the corner of a room and look at and marvel at its beauty. But nothing really of value. In fact, it's really no different than anything else that's made of wood. Eventually, it's all going to burn anyway. But because someone puts a value on it, we now know how to treat it. I would challenge you in the new year that you need to find your value because you, know how to, you need to know how to treat you and you need to know how to expect others to treat you. Many of us are hoping that God will expand our life. Many of us are hoping that God will give us more opportunities. Many of us are hoping through the next, 20, or the next year, 2020, and through the next decade that God will expand our footprint. But if you don't know how to treat you and if you don't know your value you'll be left in the same rut that you're in right now. The same rut that you feel right now. See, a rut is real simple. A rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. It's just a hole in the ground that you find yourself in. You find yourself trapped in and you can't seem to get out. It's no different than a grave. Most of us fear at times the sense of evaluation. 
If we were to stand before God and he were to give us an evaluation, he were to mark us with an evaluation, most of us would be terrified. How is God going to judge me? In our relationship with God, it's true that there is judgment. The Bible's clear that sin must be judged, yet God doesn't judge us in a way that he looks simply at our sin. That's why Jesus came, so that he could wash our sin away, so that when God looks down through time and space and sees you, the individual, he must first peer through the ocular of his son. He must look straight through Jesus to see you, and that's why the sin of your life no longer hangs around you. That's why when he looks at you in your personhood, that he can't see the sin that you used to be, but he sees the pure, the essence of purity that is his son. And this is what James was writing about. James chapter 1 and verse 5, if you're unfamiliar with the book of James, James is the brother of Jesus, the fleshly brother of Jesus. Mary actually had more kids. Sorry if your tradition doesn't teach that, but Mary had other kids. One of them was this gentleman named James. James writes one of the later books of the New Testament. We find early on in James' life that he didn't believe that his brother Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe, and many scholars believe that after his death, after Jesus' death, is when James found the idea that, oh, maybe there was something there. James writes these words, James 1 and chapter, or James chapter 1 and verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. See, there's much of life we don't understand. We don't understand how to treat ourselves. We want to value something of ourself, and we don't really know and understand the nature of who we are and what we're created to be, so we really don't know how to treat ourselves and expect others to treat us. We haven't given ourselves a sign of value, so we don't know what to and how to treat ourselves. And James says, if you're lacking wisdom to any degree, to any shape, to any form, that you should ask, ask God. Go right to the throne of God and ask him, God, where's the wisdom that I lack? God, I need that for today. I need to make a decision. I need to make a judgment. I need insight. I need some inspiration. And it says that he'll give generously. And the next line there is hard for many of us to understand without finding fault. God's not up there hoping that we screw up and that in our asking, he can just come down with lightning bolts and rain thunder and lightning on us to prove to us that he is God of heaven to prove to us that he is so sovereign and above us that he can hurt us to teach us. No, it says that he will, when we ask, give the wisdom that we're asking for without finding fault, that he'll give generously. But too many people have been taught by religion that God hurts you to teach you. You know, there's nothing like that in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture where God says, in order to teach this devilish child, I'm going to beat them senseless. There's nowhere in Scripture that we see that God says, in order to teach these people, I'm going to plague them. What God does say is when you don't obey my word, there are consequences. And that is not the same thing as God initiating a beating just to teach you. That's abuse. In fact, many of you have heard this analogy, and it's true today, and it'll be true tomorrow, and it'll be true the next time I say it. We have a four-year-old, and if this little four-year-old came up to me, and I decided I need to teach Noble about the hurts and pains of life, and I bring him up, and in front of a group of people, I take his little arm, and over my knee, and I just snap it. I mean, it hurts to think about, right? Many of you would call 911. That dude is crazy. Why would he do that to that child? Well, I want to teach him about disappointment and hurt and pain, and he needs to go through it, and what better place to go through it than the hand of a father? 
Yet this is the same behavior that we ascribe to God. We go through something difficult. Well, God's testing me. We go through something, something hard. Well, God's trying me. No, that's abusive behavior. God doesn't abuse his children to teach you. It's because we don't understand our value. If we understood our value, we would run from ideas like that. We would run from thoughts like that. We would, we would totally push against any religious idea that said God is out to hurt you to teach you. Why? Because we would understand our value. We have a God who loves us. We have a heavenly father who cares for us. We have a God who wants nothing but the best for us. In the same way that I love my kids and want nothing but the best for them. Yet there are consequences when they disobey. I don't hurt them to teach them. It's a consequence of their action. And I would never hurt them purposefully. Has your heart been established in a truth that God is not on a fault-finding mission towards you? Have you been established in that truth that God isn't out to try to find the faults in your life just to repair and to teach you? What he's trying to do is get you so in love, so enveloped, so engrossed in the person of Christ that the negative issues of our life, that the broken areas of our life fall away. I believe that this teaching, and every time that I've done it, we get the oohs and ahs and the wow, I've never looked at it that way, and I'm thankful for it. But every time we do this teaching, it is a definitive moment for us in our church. There are far too many churches in the Quad Cities who want you to believe that God would rather beat you senseless than love you with open arms. There are too many religious institutions around the world that would rather teach you that God would harm you, hurt you, and break you down. Because that's what sovereignty looks like. Why can't sovereignty look like love and grace and mercy and hope and health and wholeness? Why does sovereignty in the eyes of religion always look like a beatdown? Because that's how religious people control you. If I haven't pulled the lid off enough, if I haven't pulled the veil back enough on the dirty road of religion, I will. Because religion in itself is a garden of weeds. Religion for religious sake is, a, is literally a garden of weeds. It's a place where good concepts, good relationships with God go to die. Truly, we have to be expressing a relationship, a values assessment that I know him and he knows me. And because of the value that's ascribed to my life, based on the finished work of the cross, that I can go boldly to the throne, that I know who I am in Christ Jesus. And in knowing who I am in Christ Jesus, I have stamped on my heart and my life a sense of value, glory, honor, dignity, and worth. Wherever you find your dignity and worth, it will ultimately be your God. God has put a desire in our heart, each and every one of us, to fulfill a sense of dignity and worth. It's why we hang on to sports teams and we hope our team wins, because when they win, it ascribes a winning nature, a winning feeling, and now we have a sense of dignity and worth. It's why we climb the corporate ladder, because we get more money and we get more prestige and we get more honor, and it helps facilitate in us a sense of dignity and worth. It's why we put bumper stickers on the back of our cars that say, proud parents of an honor roll student, because it gives us a sense of dignity and worth. Greatest bumper sticker I ever saw was a kid driving around in a truck that said, I'm a proud student of parents who don't live vicariously through my menial, menial academic accomplishments. <laughs> I love that bumper sticker. I can't wait to put it on my kid's car. They probably won't like it. 
The need for value, the need for esteem, the need for worth is the basis of all behavior. You get caught in addictive behavior, it's because you're searching for a sense of value, of worth, of dignity. You get caught in even abusive relationships, it's because in that abusive relationship, somewhere you are feeling a sense of dignity and worth, and you will live through beating after beating after beating for that one moment when that idiot wraps his arms around you and says, I hit you, but you know I love you. We will live through hurt and pain that God never intended us to because we're searching to find a sense of dignity and worth. You're created by God. It's instinctual that you would seek pleasure and not pain. But the moment that we think that the hand of God, that the, 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 the command of God, that the promises of God found in Scripture, the moment that we think that they are some source of pain and not pleasure, of cutting us off what, what could be, of what's out there as an opportunity for pleasure, we will walk the other way. So if you find in your life a bad behavior that gives you a sense of dignity and worth, let's say you get addicted, alcohol or drugs, and the church comes around you and says, you know what, that's not the best behavior, let's cut that out, and you, re you rethink and reason in your mind that them cutting them out is the source of pain, you will run from religion. You will run from the Bible. You will run from good things that God's trying to put in your path to curb that negative behavior because you're still attracted to the sense of dignity and worth that's found on the other side of that addictive behavior. It doesn't matter if it's drugs or alcohol or if it's, or if it's shopping or if it's overeating, or if it's overindulgence in video games. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Wherever we find our dignity and worth outside of Christ, that becomes our God. Psalms chapter 8, verse 3 through 6 is scripture that we have read over and over and over in this church. It's the baseline for the concept of this message. And it says this, the psalmist wrote, When I look up into the night sky and I see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have made... He asks himself this question, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you visit him. You've made him a little lower. The, your, your, your Bible might say heavenly beings or it might say God. It's the Hebrew phrase, b'nei Elohim, that you've made him a little lower than the Godhead and you've crowned him with glory and honor, dignity and worth. Your Bible might say just glory and honor. Those words better translated for today are dignity and worth. You made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet. In this simple three verses, the psalmist lines out the totality of the, of the worth, of the value, of the dignity inside of every human person. That dormant lies in most people, an opportunity to be great to experience greatness, to have a level of understanding of the person of God at work in our life that blows our minds. And he says as he looked up in the night sky and he saw the stars hanging in their sockets. He looked at all and the total of creation, I believe, was given a vision of the cosmos, not just looking up into space, but given a vision of the vastness of the ever-creating expanse of the cosmos. Look at the moon and the stars and you simply flung them into existence with your fingers and he asks the pivotal question for every human person. 
What am I here for? What is man that you're mindful of him? Yet you've crowned him with glory and honor, dignity and worth. You've set him a little bit lower than the B'nai Elohim. That is the God council that gets together and discusses the affairs of man. That you've set him a little bit lower than this God-like council. You've set him to rule over the works of your hands. You have a right and a privilege and an opportunity to rule over the works of God's hand here on earth, yet too many of us let the world run roughshod over our hearts and our dreams and our minds because we don't understand our dignity and our worth. We don't understand our value, so we step back and let life happen to us rather than charging through life with bulldog tenacity, knowing what we're called to do and who we're called to be. It says that you've Put him to rule over the works of your hands. You've given dominion over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. Nothing in there says that it's through the baseline authority of God himself. Nothing in there says it's through a baseline authority of Jesus himself. He says you created as a human person, inscribed in your heart. The principal aspect of who you are is that you are called to rule and to reign, to have dominion. That everything in this earth that can be subject to man will be found under your feet. Yet too many of us don't understand our dignity and our worth. So we allow life to run by and happen to us, to push us in one direction or another, to force us into one situation or another. When will the church grow up enough to say, I've had enough? I know my sense of dignity and worth. I know my sense of glory and honor. I've had enough, whether it be the devil, whether it be this world, they all be damned. Jesus will be exalted in my life. How God created me to be a victory person, a person who lives in a sense of victory. That will raise to the top and nothing else will stand in my way because I just won't take it anymore. I understand my dignity. I understand my worth. I understand my value. That means that when you come to the cross, you shed off the old pains, old hurts, old issues of this life, and you are made new. That you can look anything in the face you can look any circumstance in the face. You can look any trial in the face. You can look any sickness and disease in the face and say, God has destined me for something greater. This will not be my end. This will not be my all. This is just a bump. A, uh, this is just a speed bump on the way to my destiny. But we have to learn what our dignity and worth is all about. We have to learn that our dignity and worth comes in knowing who we are in Christ. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12 says it like this. He measures the heavens in the span of his hand. When I consider the heavens, what is man? Again, pondering that question, what are human beings? What are we in the nature of all that God has created? It says that God crowned him with glory and honor. Again, dignity and worth from the beginning. From the, from the very beginning, you and I were crowned. We were created with a sense of glory and honor, dignity and worth. I love that it's used, it uses that word crown there and, and elsewhere in the scripture. The concept of crowned isn't like you, you just kind of fell into it and, and you were just born into it because of a new nature. No, God insisted that he state on your head a banner, a moniker, that you have glory and honor, dignity and worth. That when he sees you and he sees your potential, he doesn't just see the mess ups and the screw ups of your life. He doesn't see the hurt and pain that you might be in in the moment. That he sees within you the seed of dignity and worth, of glory and honor. That you have a potential that you can live up to that is greater than anything you've ever experienced if we'll open our hearts to a new sense of value and worth. 
Genesis chapter 2 and 25, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. It says that Adam and Eve were both naked and, and uh, the man and his wife were not ashamed. We know that they were clothed with something because later in Genesis, or in chapter 3, we'll read about it. But the idea that man and, and his wife in the beginning were naked and they were unashamed speaks to the concept that they needed no covering. They needed nothing to put over themselves to hide away their frailty of being human. In fact, in Christ and in God in that moment, in the essence of new life that came in creation, Everything was perfect. It wasn't until man sided with God's arch enemy that things began to degrade and fall and fail. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 through 10. We'll read that and I'll highlight and cap the story. So the woman saw that there was a tree that was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eye, and the tree was made desirable uh, to one that would be wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made for themselves a covering. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he, Adam, said, I hear your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. First, man was clothed with the very array, the glory, the dignity, the worth of God. Then they sided with God's arch enemy, did the one thing that God asked them not to do. Don't eat of that tree because in it, it will expose your life to what sin could be. It will expose your existence to the frailty that humans could be. Don't bite that apple. They took it anyway. In that, they recognized immediately that they were flawed, that they weren't perfect as God is perfect, that the only way they could live up to a holy standard was to live in Him. And rather than rush to the fix of all things, rather than rush under the presence of God, they decided to take matters in their own hands. They sewed together fig leaves, they tried to cover themselves, and they tried to hide in the bushes. It's the original form of camouflage, as if somehow that would hide them from anything that God could see. Yet they hid themselves in the garden. God, as he always did in their life, he found himself in the cool of the day walking amongst the Garden of Eden, the perfect place that he had created and destined for man to live. And he walks amongst the cool of the day and he calls out to his creation, where are you? And hiding in their sin and their shame, they say, God, we ate of it. We, we took a bite of that tree and I heard your voice and and I was afraid because all of a sudden I realized, I realized that I'm not perfect. I realized that I'm faulty and frail. I realized, God, that, that, that being human means I'm going to mess up and I'm going, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fail. God doesn't end this whole human experience in that moment. He sets the world on a path that would ultimately lead to Jesus because 
What Christ did at the cross was regain everything that we lost in this story. That we could go to the cross and find wholeness and health and peace and understanding and forgiveness and mercy. That we could be set to right. That we could become as we were originally created to be. That the value that we have in our hand as a human person, though it was minimal, it was that $3.60 virgin, that once we came to Christ, we would now be elevated to that $45 million marker. We would go from nothing to a McDonald's Happy Meal to the biggest payout that we've ever seen. That in Christ, we had an opportunity to regain what was lost in Genesis, in the garden. This is why Romans and the writer of Romans says this in verse three, or chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That every single one of us will fall in and fall prey to temptation and fall prey to sin. We will fall short of God's glory. That does not mean it marks us for an eternity. God's already made a way for us to be reconciled and it's through the cross. That if we'll look to the cross of Christ, we can regain a sense of dignity and worth that we were literally made for more than what we're experiencing. And the only way to find it is through that cross. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 17. We'll go from verse 20 to 24. And I'm trying to hurry up because we need to get done. Verse 20 says this, I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. 22 is real important. And the glory, the magnificence, the excellence, the preeminence, the dignity, the, the worth, the grace, which you gave me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one. And in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one. That the world may know that, they, that you have sent me and that you have loved them as you loved me. These are the words of Jesus. He asked God in, in this prayer to reunite humanity back to God in the way God and God are united. That we have in this human fleshly vessel in this person of Christ, God manifest in physical form. Yet through his entire earthly existence, he maintained a sense of connection. He maintained a sense of being in God, that Christ was in God and God was in Christ. And that when Jesus came to free us from sin, death, hell, and the grave, he also gave us an opportunity to live life at a different level. That we were made for more. That in this moment, that God himself would infuse his person back to us. That our sense of glory, honor, dignity, and worth, our sense of excellence, our sense of grace, doesn't come from some distant hope off in the future. That our sense of dignity, worth, honor, and glory, the preeminence that God is, lives in us here and now. And he says that I did this so that people would believe. Your life is intended to be changed by the power of the gospel, that you will never be the same. That if you are sick, you will be healed. That if you are broken, you will be put back together. That if you are broke, you will be made rich. The reason for that is not so that you can stand on some soapbox and say, look how great I am. The reason for that is so that you can stand on your soapbox and say, look how great God is. Look what he did in my life. 
Many of us have already come to that reconciliation that God is great, that God is good, that he's done so many wonderful things for us. But when will we take our station? When will we take our station? I have dignity and worth. You can't treat me like that. I have dignity. I have worth. I have value. I expect more out of my life. When will we come to the realization that money doesn't rule us? That it has to work for us. When will we come to the realization that your body must come under subject to the word of God? Not because God is some genie in a bottle and the word is some, some kind of magical mythical book that you recite the right words and all of a sudden, poof, a miracle happens. But because you know the value, the dignity and worth that is in you. And that when he created you and recreated you in Christ, when he made you new and whole, just like he intended in that garden, that he could walk with you in the cool of the day, have relationship with you, have real physical intimacy with you, at that moment you understand how valued you really are. That the God of the universe would put a pause on time. That it would come down to your situation, your moment of hurt and pain, your moment of happiness and excitement, that in all stages of life, that he would come to you, fellowship with you and connect with you. When we talk about the idea of life change and renewal here in this church, we're not talking about a concept of just a get out of hell free card. It's a great concept to have. In fact, if I could, I'd pass them out like candy at, at, at Halloween. I'd do what I could to get everyone this get out of hell free card because no one should experience hell. But more than that, there is a relationship with God that says, I know who I am in Christ. I live in him and he lives in me. The very essence uh, that spun this earth into ex to its existence. The very essence of the power that sits on the throne in heaven lives in me. And because of that, I have a sense of dignity and honor, of glory and worth. And no one will violate that. No circumstance, no person, no situation. I know who I am in Christ. And I will be sure that I will have all that God says I can have in him. And this is the revelation that we need to come through in my opinion, in 2020, that we come to a new revelation of who we are in Christ, not to get bigger stuff and more stuff and different things, but so God can show off in us. I want to hear more and more and more the promises of God being realized in this church and that the natural reaction bleeding out being God's been good to me, that God's been so good to me. That because I understand who I am in him, the glory and honor, dignity and worth in which I possess, that I can stand strong and know that God is good. I can know that God has good things for me. I can know that my, my future is secure. That when we speak phrases like, your best day is yet to come, it's not just a cliched phrase, it's the truth. That God is moving you on to greater and greater things in him.